You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Today we're bringing you another program with our partners at the Center for Oral History at the University of Hawaii at Manoa and the Hawaii Council for the Humanities. As we start Women's History Month, this morning's topic is Visionary Women in Politics and Education. Although few women have held high positions in political office, it doesn't diminish the role they have played as educators and community leaders who've had significant influence in shaping leaders and government policy. Some women started out as teachers and realized if they wanted to make changes in how things were done, they would have to do it themselves. Others continued to teach while serving on government and community boards and organizations. The five women featured in these oral histories all started out as teachers. One remained in teaching throughout her career while serving as a community leader through her public and government activities. The two others left teaching to become successful political leaders. What drove all of them was their vision to build a better community. Joining us this morning are Pili Aloha. Pili Liloy is a third-generation Hawaii public school teacher. She retired in 2016 after teaching at Aliomanu Middle School for 46 years. Her mom is one of the oral history voices that we will hear today. Aloha, Pili. Aloha. And Amy Peruso is a longtime resident of District 46 that covers Wahiwa, Whitmore Village, uh, Launani Valley. She was elected to the House of Representatives in 2018. She's a national board certified teacher in secondary social studies and longtime educator in Hawaii. She's taught at Mililani High School, Punahou, Kapolei Middle, and Highlands Intermediate School. Welcome, Representative Peruso. Aloha. I'm so glad you could. I'm so glad you could uh, take time out of your busy schedule to join us. Yeah, my pleasure. And HPR's news director, Bill Dorman, is also here. He will help introduce us to some of the extraordinary women whose voices you'll be hearing today. Aloha, Catherine. And we start this morning with Virginia McBride. She was born in Oregon in 1903. When she was four, she moved with her family to Chicago, three years later to Utah. She graduated from the University of Utah in 1924, taught school in Utah for a couple of years, came to Hawaii in 1927 to teach at Hilo High School. After one year in Hilo, she moved to Honolulu and taught at Kalakaua Junior High School, and in 1930 began teaching English at Roosevelt High School, which was then an English standard school. During World War II, McBride left Roosevelt for a year and a half to work in the Office of Civil Defense. During her career as a teacher, she also spent three separate years on exchange to schools in California, Utah, and Connecticut. In 1949, McBride moved from classroom teaching to administration and became principal of Molokai Elementary School for a year. Then she worked as principal for various schools on Oahu, including Waikiki Elementary, Cocoa Head Elementary, and Manoa Elementary School. She retired in 1965. And she was 88 when she was interviewed in 1991 by Joe Rossi. What were your uh, first impressions of Hawaii when you came here? It was marvelous. The place was full of teachers. Waikiki, they call that... um, Flappers Acre because there were so many teachers here <laughs> at the time. Were these teachers from the different parts of the country that were Yes, living? yes. You see, Hawaii did not train teachers at that time. Mm-hmm. And all the teachers that came, came from away. I went over to Hilo to teach school. Yeah, I was the only one from Utah. You see, the most of the people in our school were children of workers that had come here to work in the fields. We came to, to Honolulu. Out at Kalakaua, that was a junior high school. Some confounded 
person in Hawaii or some group of people. You see, the the, the Howies that came in here that were running the sugar industry and other things didn't have the feeling for the for the um, immigrants that we had. We were working with them. And somebody got a bill through, and it was passed here, that when children finished high school, the, the, the um, principal of the school was to recommend which ones could go on to the ninth grade into the senior high school, mm -hmm. and which ones were through that their education was finished when they got through the ninth grade at junior high school. They said that's high school education. They don't have to have more than a high school education. That's high school. But the, when the end of that year came, the youngsters that I had had before came in crying because they couldn't go to high school. The uh, principal had been able to recommend only a certain percentage mm -hmm. to go on. And then we had election and we went, I went with it bunch of people down at the beach where they were having their, their uh, speeches. They were trying to guarantee that we would have workers in the cane field. Well, when he got up and made a speech, I told them all, don't vote for him, don't vote for him. He is a bad man. He doesn't want our children educated. Vote against him. And I made a big speech. And a day or two later, Tom Vance, who was our principal, had invited me to their house for dinner. And when we got there, I met Oren Long and his wife. He was a deputy superintendent at that time. I knew the name, but I hadn't met him. Mm -hmm. Oh, he said, you're Virginia McBride. And I said, yes, I am. And he said, I have a message for you. He said, the superintendent has been hearing things and the people came up to complain that the teachers were out trying to influence the vote. And I have been told to tell you that you're not to tell people how to vote and you are to just let them do their own voting, and you're not to try to make up their minds for them. Well, I was getting better than hell. And he said, now I made the speech. I told you what I was told to tell you. Now I'll speak for myself. I want you to keep right on talking and do everything you can to make <laughs> sure that man is out. <laughs> Feisty Virginia McBride. Uh, talking with Joe Rossi in, in 1991 there. You know, that education to politics that we're looking at this morning through the stories of several women who did it in different ways. And that's certainly the case with Marion Lee Loy. She was born in 1911 in Honolulu, attending Central Grammar School and Lincoln School before entering Kamehameha School for Girls in the ninth grade. She graduated from Kamehameha in 1929 and enrolled at the University of Hawaii, where she received her fifth-year teaching certificate in 1934. She started her first teaching job in a small cottage in Maui. Throughout the early part of her year, Mrs. Leloy taught at schools in Kohala, Honoka'a, and Hilo. In 1951, she returned to Honolulu, where she taught at uh, Ali'ilani Elementary School, Ka'ahumanu Elementary School, and Kapalama Elementary School. Spent the last 14 years of her career teaching at Farrington High School, retired in 1974. Marion Leloy taught approximately 5,000 students throughout her 39-year teaching career. Outside the classroom, she was involved in women's organizations while in Hilo, including the YWCA, Hilo Women's Club, and Kamehameha alumni. After moving back to Honolulu, she was involved in teacher association work, served on appointed boards and commissions, including the Kamehameha Day Commission from 1951 to 61, 
and was appointed by John Burns to serve on the Governor's Commission on the Status of Women. She worked throughout her life with Kamehameha alumni, but her real passion was serving as a school representative for the Hawaii Education Association. That was the precursor to the HSTA. HEA was the National Education Association affiliate. And in 1957, she ran and was elected to serve as a delegate to her first NEA convention, attending 15 of those conventions after that. She was elected to serve in 1962-63 as president of the Oahu Education Association, the first teacher to hold this position and who successfully lobbied for the first significant pay raise and salary schedule under Governor Burns. She had four children. She was interviewed in January 1991, also talking with Joe Rossi. My parents both spoke Hawaiian fluently, but they didn't speak uh, Hawaiian to us, and they didn't want us to learn Hawaiian. Because my mother said she felt that if we learned Hawaiian, we would begin to speak a kind of pidgin. But if she kept the language pure, and we only spoke English, then we would not have problems that she noticed when she taught other children, uh, you know, that came from homes like that, mm-hmm. that the English was very poor. So she said she didn't want us, especially being a teacher herself, she didn't want any of her children speaking, speaking mm-hmm. pigeon. Mm-hmm. When did you uh, decide to become a teacher? The truth of the matter was, I actually did not want to be a teacher. I wanted to be a nurse because you help people out that are helpless. And so I told my mother I wanted to be a nurse. She said, no, I want you to go out and be a teacher. So that is how I became a teacher, mm-hmm. because she was a teacher. She wanted all her children to be teachers. Your yeah. daughter's a teacher. Teaching in the country versus teaching in the city. What differences or similarities, or whether there were any differences, did you notice? Well, I, out in the country schools, you don't have as many textbooks at your disposal for, uh, or for your use. But you know, for, for what do they had, the youngsters were very keen about learning. It was so funny, they want to stay after school, they want to show them out <laughs> in the classroom, because we want to go back to the cottage and do things for ourselves, you know. We had our ironing to do and washing and what else, so. But these youngsters wanted to stay on. I don't know this thing. You explain to me again, please. So we're going, oh, I see. It was nice, though. You know, you feel that you were really teaching those kids. I mean, they were really getting some of Was teaching for you an eight-hour-a-day job? I would say it was a 12, 10 to 12 hours. Mm-hmm. But you have six hours in school. Then you come home with all, depending on the class you had that year and what else. Sometimes my family would be all asleep. Well, usually I had my youngsters in bed by 8 o'clock. And most times I got to bed about 11 o'clock by the time I got through and went take my shower and mm-hmm. go to bed. I was just so gloomy and tired now. I was like a light. There were some teachers that yeah. said that when they closed their door at, in the afternoon, that was mm-hmm. it. He said they weren't going to take their work home with it because they feel that mm-hmm. they, after hours should be for the family and mm-hmm. so on. But I said, you know, that's not real teaching. Real mm-hmm. teaching will be you have to follow through on what mm-hmm. each person has turned into you. Mm-hmm. And at least they have made an effort. Mary, 
Marion Lee Lloyd there, interviewed by Joe Rossi in 1991, reflecting on a 39-year teaching career that included a lot of changes and adjustments along the way. Yes, and you know, uh, if you're out there listening, this is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Our guests are third-generation Hawaii Public School teacher Pili Lee Loy, uh, who we just heard her mother talk, and representative for District 46 and longtime educator in Hawaii, Representative uh, Amy Peruso. So, Pili, uh, so your mother really wanted to be a nurse, not a teacher. Interesting. And, you know, in fact, when she graduated from the University of Hawaii, there was, um, I don't know if it was an oversupply of teachers or they just didn't have um, his teaching positions. So she actually, from the university in 1933, she went, she took the LPN exam and was a nurse at Kaneohe Hospital. Wow. And then they um, went back to recruit people to come to the university to do the fifth-year program. And so she was recruited to go back. And when she graduated, um, in 1934, what happened was, as you know, because it was a depression, and so they hired two teachers for one job, and so she was sent to Huelo Maui, and that was her first position. So you know, when um, whenever you know we were you know going through different things, and when I when I started teaching, she'd always say, "Don't forget now, you know." During the Depression, they didn't have a lot of jobs, and so they had to have two teachers for one job. And then she went from Huelo, of course, to Kohala, and then Honoka, and then Hilo, and then back to Oahu. And yeah, it's um, yeah, it's so she did get to be a nurse for a short time. Then she ended up being like it. What her mother wanted was a school teacher, and you know the thing is that um, it's interesting because you know. My grandmother was a teacher, and she actually, in Kamehameha schools back in the, um, when they first started, one of the purposes was to train girls to be teachers in the government schools of Hawaii. And so they had a program where you went up to 10th grade, and then you could do two more years of teacher training. Kamehameha actually had a teacher training program, and then they went out to teach, so that would have been like 1899 but you know it's not um we now you know in my generation there's my cousin daviana and her sister and her two sisters that went into education and now daviana's daughter is up at the university and is a professor and so um then i have a, I have a grand nephew that's at the university of san diego so i guess we're a family that is all in education yeah, it's in your blood. <laughs> yeah, it's in our blood. We're not very creative when it comes to a job. <laughs> and then Repre- <laughs> Representative Peruso, you know, it was interesting uh, because I know you uh, were also with HSTA, the teachers' union. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was interesting, you know, just hearing the discussion that these women had. Right. I mean, I think that that's one of the amazing things about um, teacher unions is that because the profession is female-dominated, um, it's really a space where women can find their voice in ways that might not be possible in other professions. Um, and I've seen female teachers politicized through 
um, the union process through getting more engaged in their union. So it, it wasn't actually surprising to me to like, can listen to, to these stories and um, see that through thread <laughs> of, of union politics. Um, that made a lot of sense to me. That was my experience as well. And Peely, you had mentioned earlier uh, before the show that uh, you had been there for what two strikes uh, over the right. years right and those yeah. are painful times <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you know I mean if somebody asked me what was an outstanding moment in my mother's career I would have to say it was her participation in the 73 teacher strike I mean she had nothing to gain from going out on strike because she was at the top of the salary schedule um, her pension would be impacted um, because she was going to retire in 74. But I don't know if it's because I was on the HSTA board at the time. But, you know, she she was very committed to um, the strike. I mean, this, you know, because the strike really was an unfair labor practice because of how they were implementing the, uh, the, the contract that had been negotiated in 72. Mm-hmm. And, you know, her commitment at the time, it, it, you know, it just, you know, it was something that I, you know, I just, my sister and I said, oh, well, you know, that's what she wants to do. Um, what happened was um, the HSTA staff needed to be paid, and HSTA didn't have the money. So what she did was she um, did a non-interest loan to HSTA so our staff could be paid and so that we could have staff on board to help with the, you know, for the strike. And so, you know, if that, that was a real commitment on her part for, for the organization. But she really believed in, in, the, um, in the association. But, you know, I thought it was interesting when um, Virginia McBride talked about Orrin Long because, you know, Orrin Long not only served as superintendent, but he was, our, one of, he was the first um, U.S. senator, one of the, he and Hiram Fong were the U.S. senators from Hawaii when we first um, became a state. And so, you know, you get a lot of people from education and politics. Can I just say really quickly, um, I wanted to say this earlier, but um, it is such an honor being on this phone call with Peely because um, Union leadership, we understand our, the struggles that our predecessors experienced and, um, and also kind of that experience of going through a strike. I think it's the highest expression of solidarity for your colleagues, for your fellow workers. And um, I, I know what that feels like. I entered the profession in a strike, and um, that's what helped me uh, really understand that this profession was for me because it was also about politics. Um, but the fact that you were on the board um, that really helped organize that 73 strike, that was a pivotal moment for us. And, uh, you know, I remember uh, uh, being out there covering that second strike, and, uh, oh, gosh, that was long. That was. <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. didn't think there was a, a light at the end of the tunnel at times. Yeah, but I learned a lot about how the Department of Education uh, worked and was organized, you know, because you had the cafeteria workers out there, uh, you know, and, and, and what schools served the lunches and what didn't. And, uh, yeah, that was a really uh, interesting time. 
uh, for for uh, parents, for teachers, for the kids. That was rough. Yeah. But thank goodness we don't have to. Doesn't seem like we we need to go out and strike again. I hope not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, if you're just joining the conversation, we're talking about visionary women in politics and education. We're joined today by two longtime educators. Uh, you can join our discussion by calling one 941 3689 Stay with us. We will be right back after the break. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, why are we so reluctant to ask sensitive questions? I imagine most people listening have this cringy feeling about either asking these or being asked these. New research shows we are missing out by not asking certain sensitive questions. There could be things that I fail to think about because I haven't had those conversations. Can I ask you a ridiculously personal question? That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspin. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from McDonald Rudy, a Honolulu law firm serving the community for nearly 30 years, offering a range of trusts and estates litigation services, including wills, trusts, and probate. Learn more at mcdonaldrudy.com. Welcome back to The Conversation, bringing you another program today with our partners at the Center for Oral History at the University of Hawaii at Manoa and the Hawaii Council for the Humanities. And as we start Women's History Month this morning, talking about visionary women in politics and education, hearing stories along the way from those interviewed by the Center for Oral History. And our, our next voice is Dr. Hatsuko Kawahara. She was born in 1911 in Honolulu to the daughter of immigrants from Japan. As Nisei, she attended Central Grammar School in Hawaii Nippon Chuo Gakuin before completing a two-year Smith Hughes vocational training program, part of a national program to encourage vocational training at the Territorial Normal and Training School. At the request of Elsie Wilcox, she started the first kindergarten on Kauai in 1932, Lihue Kindergarten. Sounds like a backyard quiz, actually. She later went on to earn her bachelor's in education from Northwestern University and the National College of Education in Evanston, Illinois in 1937, her master's from the University of Wisconsin in 1950, and a doctorate in education from Columbia University Teachers College in 1954. She continued to teach, worked in the Department of Education's district and state offices, and served on the Board of Education. In retirement, she continued to work as an educational consultant. In 1991, she was 80 years old when she sat down for an interview with Michiko Kodama Nishimoto. As you were completing eighth grade, what were your thoughts of the future? Did you think you were going on to school? or? What were you looking ahead at? My mother didn't want me to send me to high school, so I accepted it. And then I went to YWCA to look for, you know, uh, a job. And I went to work uh, for two weeks. And they felt uh, at 14 years old, I was too young to be able to do the housework. And so, um, 
I heard about this um, Smith Hughes vocational training program and enrolled in there. It was uh, homemaking and preparing uh, students to work uh, or uh, be in charge of the cafeteria at the various public schools. It was really a combination of uh, going to business as well as cooking for large groups of people. Castle Foundation hired me full-time. The group at the Castle Kindergarten felt that I should get a college education. So they gave me a four-year scholarship and paid my way to National College of Education to Evanston, Illinois. Why did you decide to run for the Board of Education? And were there like specific issues or, or areas that you were really concerned about? Special education. Another was in the area of curriculum. While I, I was a curriculum chairman, one thing I was able to push it as chairman was that having that diploma for the, the one big lesson I learned uh, as a member of board is that for any uh, politician who may come out with some ideas, uh, as long as he has integrity, I feel that even though he or she is in a minority, really needs to support if the idea is not political. And it's difficult for a politician to, you know, stick with an idea or his ideals. And uh, um, more and more, I think, uh, as having been an elected uh, official, having been uh, in psychology and whatever, that to evaluate the person based on not on the politics, but the person him or herself. The person him or herself. Boy, there's an insight and a concept that resonates today. Hatsuko Kawahara talking with Michiko Kodama Nishimoto in 1991 when Ms. Kawahara was 80 years old. You know, this idea of special education, uh, I don't know. Well, you know, anything that resonated uh, with you there, Representative Peruso? Absolutely. I think that... Um, Right now, actually, we're facing struggles around funding, and um, one of the reasons I went into union leadership was because I felt like our students were not getting the schools that they deserved, and that was really evident for our special education students in particular. Um, so I, I think that this is uh, you know, a perennial concern, and I, I think that um, it's that impulse. What I've noticed about teachers and teacher activism um, and teachers being willing to overcome their, uh, I guess, hesitance to enter politics, it's usually about caring for those who are the most vulnerable. Um, and I think you see that um, when you look at uh, periods of unrest, periods of strikes, uh, teachers are very clear about the impacts that funding cuts have on the students, on the children. Um, so I, I think that that's, I, I feel like that also motivated all of the women who were interviewed for this series. I could hear that, you know, in various parts of their stories. 
And Peely, you know, today even, I think we, we have a great need for special education teachers. Yeah. I, you know, what I thought was interesting about Dr. Kuhara is that the fact that she started off in preschool um, yeah. teaching, which is another area that, you know, the I know that Governor Abercrombie really had that as part of a, his mantelpiece for education and, you know, wanting to have, um, you know, universal preschool. And so I thought that's interesting that, you know, that was an area that she started in as well as, you know, the whole, um, you know, special ed, you know, that we we now know that the earlier intervention we have, the better. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, that's really where it has to also start, but then, you know, you have to have it for the entire continuum of teaching. I mean, it's just, there are just so many um, areas that we have to, you know, provide for education of our of our keiki. Yeah, and we need to do more to uh, to train our teachers, right? Because I think, we, as we heard in that first interview at the top of the show, they didn't train teachers, and all the teachers had to come from abroad. Right. I mean, the thing that that was for for the um, I think they were they said that it was elementary teaching. I guess, you know, when they have the normal school, they were just training teachers in Hawaii for um, elementary, but not for the high school. And so they had to bring in the teachers um, because she came in like 1927. But by the time my mother um, graduated, they were doing high school um, they were teaching um, teachers to go into the high school as well. Yeah, and I think that that question of teacher education is so, so critical because, um, and also incentivizing our young people um, so that they do go into um, teaching. And I think that like we've developed that program, that Grow Our Own program, um, so that we can have our own young people um, in our classrooms teaching our children um, because we've seen the impact that it has when we, um, you know, I think there's a culture shock sometimes when, when our children are being taught by folks who don't understand this place or understand the history of this place. And um, I think kids really need to see people from their own community in the classrooms. So um, the Grow Our Own program is, I think, one of our highest priorities. I, I think it can change a lot about what we do in public education. And I, I think that step with the teacher education college um the teachers college was was really critical in that direction yes you know we, we have the college of education now and i know i recall at one time we had both the school board and members of um i think the uh regents come together because they were saying we really need to work together we need to to uh to create our our uh, teachers for the future yeah. uh and tackle these issues of education you know um, former um dean of the college of education um, Hubert Everly, when, you know, right in the, the 70s, there was a quote-unquote, as they said, oversupply of teachers, and he would say, you know, a teacher education can hold you and bode you well in any career in this town, and so I used to remember that. That was very fondly, you know, and, um, but, you know, I think, like, as, you know, uh, Representative Peruso said about, you know, growing your own, I, you know, I think that at Farrington High School, where the principal, Al Carganella, graduated from Farrington and returned mm-hmm. to be the principal of his high school. And then you look at James Sunday, 
who was a military student, and he was at Radford High School. Yes, and still there. (laughs) Yeah, he's still there. And, you know, I think that the military families really appreciate that, that, you know, there's somebody Mm -hmm. that went through the system and has stayed with the system. And that's why it's, you know, I think Representative Peruso says it's really important that we grow our own. You know, that that combination of of passion and preparation for careers that can extend beyond education and into politics, certainly the case with our our next personal story hearing about this morning. Helene Hale, she was born in 1918 in Minneapolis, graduating Washburn High School, University of Minnesota, where she also got her master's degree in 1940, continued her education at Claremont College, began her teaching career in 1945 at San Diego State College, in 47, she moved to Hawaii and taught at uh, Konawana High School for three years, later taught at the University of Hawaii at Hilo from 65 to 66. She became the president of Hawaii Isle Realty and president of Hale Consultants in 1965, served on the board of supervisors for the Big Island from 1955 to 63, and was chairman and chief and executive officer from 63 to 65, returned to county politics in 1980 as a member of the county council, formerly Board of Supervisors, served until 84. In 2000, she ran for the state house, making her not only the oldest person ever elected at the age of 82, but also the first African-American to serve in the legislature. She had two children. The interview you're about to hear was conducted in May 1988 in Hilo by Chris Coney Bear and Dan Tuttle. Helene started off this portion talking about what it was like when she and her husband arrived in Hawaii soon after World War II in 1947. We came as school teachers. Really, my husband came as a school teacher, and I was going to stay home for another year because my daughter was only a little over three. But there was such a shortage in the dearth of school teachers that we couldn't get a teacher's cottage to live in unless I could teach. They didn't even ask me whether I was qualified to teach. We decided to go to Kona. Nobody wanted to go to Kona to teach. I mean, all the Kona teachers wanted to go to Honolulu. I taught at Kona Wina. Both of us did. We didn't like the, the economic system, which reminded us of the South. It was just like an old Southern plantation, the feudal system. It was feudalism, really. And we advocated capitalism, where people could own their own land and build their own houses. And if you advocated capitalism in those days, they could call you a communist, which they did, <laughs> you know. We'd been there three years. In the 1950, my husband was the first constitutional convention. Right. So my husband decided to run for that. He was advocating the breaking up of the plantation system and selling the land in fee simple, which most of the big landowners couldn't do because their trusts had tied up their land so they couldn't sell it. Of course, that really shook up the establishment in Kona. And because I was teaching at Kona Waina, they tried to put pressure on my job and, you know, tell me I had, he had to be quiet, so I just wouldn't take that, and I resigned. When you first ran, were gender or race, any kind of issue? I had been a school teacher for three years, and there was an awful lot of respect for school teachers. So I had a lot of my former students who would help me, and uh, I think that helped a lot, because my husband had been a school teacher too. But I was the first woman ever elected to a board of supervisors in the I, state. I thought not only were you the first, but you kept getting reelected too, didn't you? Yeah. Well, after you once got in, it's... Um, a little easier. People got used to a woman. 
Up to that time, you see, people had not considered a supervisory job a woman's job because most of the supervisors considered themselves super road overseers. They spent their time <laughs> patching the roads, and, and I considered myself a policymaker. <laughs> I got elected for four terms, and then uh, by that time, we were beginning to get some authority on them. We were beginning to get some home rule. Basically, the old Board of Supervisors was an administrative body. The chairman was full-time, and the board only met once every two weeks. So you'd make policy decisions, and they wouldn't be carried out. So I ran. But I won. I think we did a real good job, but we didn't play politics. I, I look back on those days, and I feel that I can, I, I can live with myself. I did it the way I thought it ought to be done. Boy, I did it the way I thought it ought to be done. Isn't that a great thing to be able to say? <laughs> Lena Hale, a trailblazer on so many fronts. Talking there with Chris Coney Bear and Daniel Tuttle in 1988. And uh, Representative uh, Peruso, well, what do you think? I mean, you know, you're following in her footsteps, right? Educator, now politician. A bit. I mean, I think that uh, the challenges she described um, still obtain. <laughs> they still exist. Um and I, I'm just struck by her um, sense of clarity and vision, you know, <laughs> doing it the way she thought it should be done. And I, I think that um, it, that's so easy to lose. And I think that it's also, I, I'm um, also struck by how difficult it must have been for her not to have the support of other women. I. Um, coming from the teaching profession, which is female-dominated, I found that culture to be very collaborative and consensus-based um, and uh, mutually supportive. And um, politics, uh, at its best, can be like that. But uh, my experience is that you know the culture of, of this building is definitely not... not um, it's more hierarchical and rigid and, and kind of top-heavy, right, so in terms of decision-making. Um, so it, it's striking to me that she was able to operate um, so effectively without kind of an, a support system. And I, I found a support system with the Women's Legislative Caucus, but without that, I would be hard-pressed. And Pilly, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, my mother knew both Helene and Bill Hale. Um, because they were teachers from Kona, and both of them were actually active in the Hawaii Education Association. But you know, my grandfather, Leloy, was an active Democrat before it was chic to be a Democrat, was always proud of Helene Hale and loved when she would walk the streets of Hilo and talk story with the Hilo residents, even though she represented Kona. And, you know, he... He was really proud of the fact that she was a Democrat because when she first got elected, it wasn't, you know, still a little, not, not too chic to be uh, a Democrat. You know, the, um, there were people on the council were mostly, um, they were still, still Republicans. And, you know, she was also very active with an organization called the National Business and Professional Women's Club. And both my mother was also active with that organization, and that organization was headquartered in D.C. And so they did different community activities through BPW and, you know, to work for equity in the workforce. So she was really a, a pistol. <laughs> she, <laughs> she 
she was amazing when you think about, you know, the fact that you know, she came to Hawaii. But as she said, you know, when she ran, and, and I think that this is what happens when you have, um, you know, teachers that run from their district and they have students that, you know, know them and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and especially, you know, Mrs. Hale taught um, high school um, social studies. And so I'm sure that, you know, her students knew that that's, you know, that she would be out there working for them. And, as, and their parents knew that as well. So I think that there's something to be said about women who teach and go into politics, like mm-hmm. Rep- Representative Peruso. You are listening to The Conversation uh, here on HPR. We would uh, encourage you to uh, uh, call us at 941-3689 or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands to share uh, your memories of any of the teachers that we are talking about. And we're going to move on to another pistol, right, Bill Dorman? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Boy, talk about education inspiring such passion, not only on the part of students, but also on the part of of teachers as well, and that that passion lingering and extending into to other areas, and including politics. Um, we're winding up hearing our interviews this morning, put together by the Center for Oral History at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, along with the support of the Hawaii Council for the Humanities. We wrap up with Pat Psyche, born in Hilo in 1930. She attended Hilo High and received her bachelor's degree from the University of Hawaii at Manoa in 1952. She went into teaching before beginning a political career with the Republican Party. She was first elected to the Hawaii State House of Representatives in 1968. In 1974, she won a state Senate seat where she stayed for eight years. She was the first Republican since statehood to be elected to the U.S. House in 1986. She served for two terms before running for the U.S. Senate and losing to Dan Akaka. Five children. This interview was conducted by Daviana McGregor, Emmett Aluli, and Hardy Spore in 2019 when Pat Psyche was a young 89. Before I even graduated from college, Dr. John Fox, who was the president of Punahou, came up to the university and said, it's time that we hired a local person to teach at Punahou. We always hired only mainland people. So, Pat, we'd like very much, when you graduate, to come down and become a member of our faculty. And I taught there for a year until I got married with, to Dr. Psyche, and we left for Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where he did his graduate work. We returned to Honolulu, and I then resumed my teaching career, six more years at Kamiki Intermediate School, and then at Kalani. At Kalani, I said, well, the best way to teach you American problems is to let you learn about government. And the best way to learn about government is for you to participate. At that time, there was a measure before the legislature to lower the voting age to 18. So I said, well, then you draft up the testimony, and I'll make arrangements for you to go down to the legislature and testify and lobby. So they did. And by golly, the measure passed. That was the greatest lesson for them. They learned American problems firsthand. You know, they, they really appreciated it. Kalani is where I got exposed to politics. The Republicans sought my participation. They were all on Maui. They drafted me to come over because they were going to put me up as secretary of the Republican Party. 
And I did. They elected me as secretary of the Republican Party, and that's how I got involved with party activities, although I had already committed to be a Republican. My Republican friends, who were researchers with the, with the minority party at that time, convinced me that I should come down and work for them. So after the year at Kalani, I went to the uh, research committee of the Republican Party. But, you know, they were not as interested or concerned about education as I was. So all of my suggestions had to wait. So I decided, hmm, I think I'll try to do this myself, if this is the way to do it. And so that's when the inkling came to my head that perhaps I should try. I then got elected to the 1968 Constitutional Convention because I thought this is the beginning of a new era for Hawaii. It was during that time that I met Hannibal Tavares. He was the one that whispered to my husband that I should run for office. I really seriously felt that I shouldn't be running for office because I had five kids by that time. And I should be a homemaker and stay home with the kids. But no, uh, my parents from Hilo, the Fukudas, came over and volunteered that they will help me take care of the family. And of course, my husband was totally supportive. They convinced me that I should run. So I did. That began the career. A career that started for Pat Saiki when the Republicans sought my participation, as she <laughs> said, talking there in 2019 with Daviana McGregor, Emma Aluli, and Hardy Spore. Yes, and uh, Pat Saiki, uh, she was a PE teacher and a gifted athlete. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I've talked to folks who, uh, who were her students, and they just, yeah, they hold uh, her up, uh, put her on a pedestal for all she has achieved. Uh, Peely, any thoughts? What are well, you struck? Well, first of all, my mother taught Pat Psyche. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and she, was, she graduated in that famous class of 48. And, you know, it, when we were growing up, you know, was, you know, if there was some outstanding doctor, lawyer, coach, teacher, insurance agent, she'd say, that's Pat Psyche's class, class of, of 48. You know, so it, it's, um, and I know how, um, you know, everybody at the legislature, I remember when we had the, when the Equal Rights Amendment passed in, um, in, in Congress, um, she, she put in the bill to have um, Hawaii adopt the constitutional amendment. And it was quite unusual because she was, you know, a Republican, but they, um, the senators allowed her to be the sponsor even though she was a Republican. And, you know, she, um, you know, she was really a person that could walk both sides of the aisles. I mean, the Democrat senators loved her as well as, as the Republicans. So she really was, she's amazing. She really is an amazing person and, and legislator. And, and it really shows how she, you know, was just really loved by everyone. Yeah, I, I think, too, one story I wanted to add um, that I just heard that um, was told to me, that Pat Psyche um, was also quite the pro quiet problem solver. So, um, I mean, everybody's familiar with the story of Kaholave and the, really, the fight to end the bombing. And, um, you know, I've studied this period. I've walked my students through it multiple times. And only recently did it become clear that Pat Psyche um, was really critical in getting President Bush, 
also as a fellow Republican, to issue the executive order that did ultimately stop the bombing um, and, and hand over the island. And so I, I think that um, oftentimes, I think that's just indicative of the kind of leader that she was. And I think, you know, when you talk about being able to work across party lines, she was definitely able to do that. Um, but I just think of her as a problem solver, you know, very pragmatic and clear-sighted. Yeah, and you know, uh, I am uh, envious uh, uh, of the teachers that are still out there in the classroom uh, helping our young minds to thrive and that maybe we can get uh, other young girls, young women uh, into the profession uh, in, uh, as an, either as an educator or uh, as a lawmaker. Uh, it, it's just amazing what uh, kind of influence uh, a teacher has. Yeah, I know. You know, I think that, um, you know, my mother always, you know, she she's always proud of all the different um, um, careers that her students um, you know, were in, but she really um, always appreciated when um, she would learn that one of her students became a teacher. And I know how for myself, you know, when I'm, you know, the, I was so proud that three of my former students actually came back to Aaliyah Manu and taught mm -hmm. with me. And I thought that, you know, that was just like, wow, <laughs> they, they're they here and they're, they're my colleagues now. And, mm -hmm. and that's so important. Yeah, I feel like I, I taught um, the generation that is breaking our hearts, <laughs> you know, that, um, I, I have some students who have stayed here, and I honestly feel like um, those students are part of my extended family. But so many of my students in the past 20 years have um, gone to college on the continent and have stayed there because they can't afford to come back. And I think for me, that was also another huge motivating factor um, in terms of entering into politics because uh, you don't really see the pattern until it happens. Like. Ten times, ten classes, you, you know, you lose the vast majority of your students who, with whom you've become very close. So I think that that's something um, we're going to see the effects of this loss of our young people for a while. But I think teachers feel it first. Um, with, I mean, except for their immediate families, of course. Well, you know, if you like what you've heard today and you want to find out more, the Center for Oral History at UH Manoa will host an online event on Thursday, March 4th, uh, Weaving Voices, Visionary Women in Politics and Education. It starts at 5.30 p.m. Uh, at, they ask that you RSVP to attend. Uh, they will be featuring guest speakers, uh, First Lady Dawn Ige and, and Pili Aloha Liloy, and that's Thursday. And we will have links on our website hawaiipublicradio.org. Uh, we would uh, love to hear from you. If you Again, if you have any stories about any of the women that we featured today or, or any of our guests, please call. That wraps it up for today. Uh, we'd like to thank our guests, Representative Amy Peruso and Pili Liloy, our partners at the Center for Oral History at UH Manoa and the Center, uh, Hawaii Council for the Humanities. Uh, thank you, HPR News Director Bill Dorman, and we thank you, the listener, for joining us on today's show. Uh, check out the Conversation podcast at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.